Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. And I'm Emile Donovan, and today we're joining forces to look at the protests at Parliament. Anti-vaccine mandate protesters have tried to physically break through the line of police standing between them and the beehive. Organisers of Taltuan News are planning on occupying the site for at least a week and hope thousands more will join them. How long are you planning to stay? Well, we'll stay until we get a result. For the past week, part of the nation's capital has been brought to a standstill and the police and politicians are struggling to work out how to end it. The speaker's sprinklers and silly songs all weekend did little more than irritate the occupiers. Andrew Costa says the clock is ticking. Move the cars or they will be towed. And if you get in the way, expect to be arrested. So today we're talking to three journalists who are reporting on the ongoing occupation about how it's unfolding, how they're covering it, and why this protest is so different to anything they've ever seen before. Mark Dalder is a political reporter for newsroom.co.nz. So you knew that this was happening a couple of days before people really started to pour into Parliament. What were you expecting? Personally, I was not expecting it to be, obviously, to turn out into what it has turned into. A tall order. This is unprecedented for New Zealand. We've never had an occupation of this scale, and certainly with tents on Parliament grounds. Uh, so some degree Kristen Hall is a reporter with TVNZ. Yeah, I remember I did I did a live cross for the midday news. Kia ora, Melissa. Well, police handed out a notice uh, from the speaker to the protesters this morning, basically warning them that they are on thin ice. There are still hundreds of protesters. And it was still pretty small at that point. Like, there were only a few hundred people, and it was like people were milling around. It was sort of a picnic-y vibe, and then as more and more people started arriving, and particularly as the vehicles started arriving. Um, And blocking the streets and things, we went out to do interviews with people on the streets, people on both sides, people from the protest and um, random passers-by, and and that's when people started coming up and, and, you know, yelling to us fake news and all this sort of stuff and, you know, quite a bit of hostility. If I was I was interviewing um, a group of, of young high school girls who, who weren't able to catch their bus and there were guys crowding around and, and yelling, oh, you guys are wrong and, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, people generally don't behave that way, particularly in New Zealand. You know, we're, we're quite polite people. I don't think I've ever been in a situation where you're just carrying out an interview on the street and there's all these people wanting to crowd in and and interrupt and all that sort of thing and that to me was very new and that was when I was like I think this is going to be something different. Speak to me here as someone who isn't there and who wasn't there what has it been like it's been different every day. The first day when they got here last Tuesday was much uh, calmer. Um, people just sort of were coming in. They were setting up the logistics and people set up tents and things. Wednesday morning, the police came in and, and tried to clear out some space and, and, and took control of the forecourt, which the protesters had sort of had free access to prior to that. But it was it was broadly non-confrontational until that there was that moment just after 3 p.m. when one of the um, protesters tried to come into Parliament and was arrested by police along with two others. Then the Thursday when the police came in, really intending to kick people out, was um, the 
sort of most hectic day probably. And, and, and you know, you, you'll all have seen the footage of uh, the, the police pushing against the protesters' lines and, you know, 122 people arrested, all, all of that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, each day has just had a completely different vibe to it from the terrifying to the absurd. The grounds are completely destroyed now. They've, they've covered them with hay to try and soak up some of the moisture from both the cyclone and the sprinklers. Saturday, as I understand it, was much more of a festival-like atmosphere before the rain really started. Sunday was dreary, and, and, and um, today it's, it's a lot of people yelling back at the speakers that uh, Trevor Mallard has set up, and, but, but not maybe the same tension as was there last week. Have you spoken to many of the protesters in person? Like, Do you, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel safe doing that? Uh, I don't. Some of the protesters have, as I understand it, gone up to the balcony where where the media are able to film from and and asked for me by name and asked for me to come down one person said that he just wanted to talk and that he promised he wouldn't attack me which is not sort of a proactive promise that you usually need when you just want to have a chat with someone um so personally i have not gone down to the protests there are plenty of journalists who have there is an overarching sense of of why people are there and that is freedom of, of some description, but you've got a lot of conflicting ideas within that. You know, you speak to people who say they're double vaccinated. You speak to people who are really strongly anti-vax and believe that vaccinations are murdering like unborn children and killing unborn children and that sort of thing. You've got people who believe in QAnon. You've got people who think that's absolutely crazy. You've got people who believe that the Nuremberg trials have started. You've got people who say, no, that's not okay. That's derailing our message. Um, So you're getting like all this conflicting stuff And at the same time, when we're going out and speaking to people, the most common refrain that we've all heard is tell the truth. Media are not telling the truth. But there is not a universal agreement in the camp as to what the truth actually is. You know, some of them believe in these wild conspiracy theories and some of them don't. And and at the end of the day, none of them are happy. So it's, it's been a very strange experience in that sense. So as someone who's been following... COVID-19 conspiracy theories since the start of the pandemic. COVID-19 is like the perfect meta-narrative in which you can put any pre-existing belief. So if you are a 5G conspiracy theorist, suddenly COVID comes into that and you can say that the 5G causes it or or what have you. If you are an anti-vaxxer, you know, who is against MMR vaccines and flu shots and whatever else, then obviously COVID is fertile ground for you. If you are a QAnon adherent who believes that there's a global plot to depopulate the earth and that elites want to harm children. But there are darker elements, like references to QAnon, the US far-right conspiracy theory. There's a lot there for you in COVID as well. So while the organisers have a more a more narrow focus of what they want, although still you know, fairly radical, repealing all COVID-19 legislation. That includes things like, you know, requiring border workers to get tested or uh, allowing uh, vaccines to be free for immigrants. Like, this is all stuff that is in legislation that they would like repealed. They're more narrowly focused than a lot of the people who have shown up to push their particular cause, which I think it's fair to say the organizers want it to be an anti-mandate protest. I don't think it's fair to say that 
the vast bulk of the people there are only there because they're against mandates and they fully believe the science of vaccination otherwise. Mm. But there are lots of people pushing each and every kind of cause you can think of, right? Anti-1080 activists, there are Three Waters people, there are certainly some extreme far-right people and, and, and QAnon and Trump supporters, right? And there is a, a minority, but a, 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 you know, a faction of people there who do have violent intentions, who, if there weren't police there, might do something violent. Some people, particularly in the media, have taken some heat for adopting maybe like a good faith view of the protest as a whole and saying, while there are some people here with extreme views. That is the case with any protest. We should not allow those fringe elements, however extreme or worrying or dangerous they might be, to completely override the core of it, if the core is a reasonable argument. Yeah. How do you characterize the protest? How do you characterize it when thinking about how to receive it? I think that the, the majority of the people there don't have violent intentions. I think even if you are an anti-vaxxer, you have a right to protest. I'm personally not too bothered by the disruption to the city uh, because I can imagine scenarios where I would support a protest that was that disruptive, right? I'm someone who is, is very clear on my views on climate change. I don't think it would be unreasonable if climate protesters were to block roads. And so that is not my issue with the protest. My issue with the protest is that even though the vast majority of the people there have no violent intentions, it is not a safe place to be. Enough people there do actually want to lynch MPs and journalists that I, and just about every MP in this building, don't feel comfortable walking out there and chatting with them or even getting to work through the crowd. I think it's important not to say the entire protest is here to kill MPs, but I don't think you can pretend that there isn't an element there either. It's a, I don't think you can just say it's one thing or it's not that thing. We have to have a bit more nuance here because uh, it's a complex situation. I do believe that there are reasonable people there, but then the question becomes, if you're so reasonable and your message is peace, maybe it would be a good idea to to stand up to some of these people who are up on the speakerphones holding mock trials um, of media and, and academics and politicians. Maybe some of the peaceful people should be saying, hey, guys, put away the nurses. This is not reasonable behaviour. Maybe some of them should be coming up when we're doing media interviews and, and stopping the people that are trying to disrupt that and, and say abusive things. That would really help their cause, I think. Um, and, and that is what has been a big obstacle um, in, in this you know, idea that they're trying to put out that it is 100% peaceful. I mean, if, if there was a, like a little bit more control of these extremist elements within the group, um, you know, then that idea would be e- easier to convince people of, I think. This is maybe like two to 3,000 people, there or thereabouts, that are at Parliament. It is, it is a, a, a tiny fraction of the population. However, you, you write in your piece on the One News website, the penultimate line of it, our little country has never been more divided in my lifetime. What do you mean by that? Can you can you get into that a little bit? It's not the numbers. It's more about the intensity of the rhetoric that I see is, is causing that division. Like in, in earlier times, I, I feel like 
people on on opposite sides could sit down and and have a nice conversation about whether they're vaccinated or not or whether they believe in mandates or not and I'm starting to feel and maybe it's because I've been caught up in this for so many days that that is increasingly impossible to do I think the middle ground is starting to disappear and people are taking one side or another we're not able to communicate as well with each other anymore messages online have have got more extreme that's what I mean when I feel like we're divided it's not so much me saying that 50% of the population supports the protesters. It's more the intensity of the division. And and that's what I worry about. And that's what I hope doesn't stick around. It sucks to feel like your place of work is not safe for you, which people have different opinions. There are other journalists here who feel perfectly safe, and that's great for them. But they're not people who have received anti-Semitic death threats for three years, right? From some of the same people who are out there. Mm -hmm. Phil Arps is a convicted neo-Nazi who was arrested in Nelson on his way up because he was talking openly at gas stations about how he was preparing for public executions. There are other people like that who are in the crowd. Again, it's not the majority of people there, but that means it's not a safe place for me, Mm. uh, which sucks. It's a very wide set of interests that are down there. So it ranges from anti-authority to anti-vaccination to anti-mandate. Wellingtonians have had a guts full. Oh, we'll stay until we get a result. It has stepped in my mind beyond the protests, given we have seen the ongoing harassment and intimidation of people who are trying to go about their daily lives. Let's go to Tracy Watkins now. She's the editor of the Sunday Star Times and has been reporting on politics for decades. It's such a a different sort of protest to anything we've seen at Parliament, isn't it? The obvious one that was the biggest and most sort of, if you like, impassioned protest that I saw in my time was the Forshaw and Seabed protest. But I think as the police said the other day, this is just uncharted waters, particularly the number of days that it's gone on and and I can't see how it will end at this point. So the Forshaw and Seabed protest, how, how was that different to this one? It had a very clear purpose, a very clear articulated purpose. It was uh, much bigger. I think there were about 20,000 or more people who arrived at Parliament. I can certainly recall the the day they streamed in. It was one of those days that sort of, you know, it was just such a huge, passionate protest. And there were some very angry moments there, for instance, famous scenes of Tama Edi spitting on the ground in front of Michael Cullen, Sir Michael Cullen. But it was coalesced around one cause and it resulted in uh, momentum for a political party and an ideology that 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 was very successful for you know uh, at that time sort of leading to the formation of the Maori Party and also in the end um, quite a significant rewrite of the Forshaw and Seabed Act. This protest is a lot harder to see um, what the common ideology is. I mean, I know that they're talking about vaccination and mandates, but I think we've all seen the sort of wide disparity of signs and causes and groups and people. I think if there's one ideology that that does unite them, it's, um, I think anti-establishment isn't the right word because it's not strong enough. It's a group that totally has absolute lack of trust in 
the authorities and the government and the media and the police and everyone, you know, this just this, that seems to be the biggest uniting cause around them. You wrote an opinion piece at the weekend and you talked about the countless sad stories of people who've been thrown into the fringes of society because yeah. of the opposition to vaccines and vaccine mandates. I think that's one of the, the serious questions we have to ask about, about the vaccine mandates, and particularly with Omicron, which is such a different kettle of fish to the previous parts of the pandemic, like Delta. The issue, I think, is that there's a lot of people who are now on the fringes of society who are disenfranchised by the vaccine mandates. They've lost jobs, they've lost family, they've lost friends, and a lot of them were people who are not. I think one of the people that our guys interviewed, I think Kevin Norton and Craig Hoyle went down there and spoke to a lot of people and moved around the crowd. One of them was sort of like, I was the person who organised the, you know, the soccer lunches. Uh, I was the mum who did that, you know, and here she is on the grounds of parliament with, with this, so many other dis- disenfranchised people. I think the danger is that more and more of these people because they're so disenfranchised, because they feel so much on the fringes of society and their fears are not believed, they're not trusted, and they don't trust anyone who's telling them it's okay. I think they're at risk of becoming more and more radicalised. What's the repercussions for mandates then? Are you suggesting that that they have to end or too too many more people will be disenfranchised? I don't think anyone knows the answer because I think we all understand the reasons for mandates, which is that vaccination is crucial to protecting our health systems and the entire infrastructure of the country. The difficulty is that whilst we can argue that it's a very small minority of people who've chosen not to be vaccinated and an even smaller minority of people who who have lost jobs and uh, positions in society as a result of that, they still number in the tens of thousands. That's not a small group. And somehow we have to, to, to figure out how to how to deal with that. Do I know the answer to that? No, I don't. I don't know that anyone does at the moment because it is new territory. But I think it's something that has to be talked about and we do have to try and come up with some sort of answers around that. What do you think about Trevor Mallard's handling of this? And I just wonder how at previous protests at Parliament, whether the Speaker had so much of a profile. No, and, I, and I'm and i not sure if, that's the, if the reason is because most of the protests didn't last this long. They're stretching into the second week and there's no end in sight. Or if it's purely peculiar to Trevor, who, as we all know, he, he's got very strong views about things. I mean, at I don't think anyone believes it helps the situation. The speaker's sprinklers and silly songs all weekend did little more than irritate the occupiers. Seems pretty childish, you know, um, immature. If he thought that was going to make the people go away, you know. I also understand his frustration, you know, and he's never going to come out and say this, but there have been trespass orders um, against the protesters. Any and it was a little bit of a matter of him taking it into his own hands, really. I mean, Trevor's someone who's been at Parliament for for decades, and there's a lot of MPs in that situation who do see it as a place 
should be respected and, and people should have the ability to come and grow. Whilst they, they might have the, the ability for lawful protest, it's also a place where the public should feel free and safe to enter. But did it help? No, I don't think it did. It sort of gave the protesters a, a focus and something to bring them together more. And what about the other politicians? Because none of them have gone engaged. down there, engaged. No, I think they're very aware that, I mean, the, the interest in the protest of this occupation is absolutely huge. And I know Radio New Zealand would have seen that as much as staff and every other news organisation. The public are very, very engaged in seeing what's going on. But I would suspect that there'd be very little public sympathy for the protesters and the Prime Minister. The most mileage for her is in showing that she's strong and not engaging with them. And certainly I don't think she can afford to engage with them at the moment. There's people down there threatening to execute politicians and particularly threatening to execute Jacinda Ardern. What, you know, what upside would there be in her going to meet them mm. or any other politician for that matter it would it almost look like they were endorsing that sort of sentiment you think this protest will end badly well unless they find a way through and i think the first thing they have to try and do and i know the police have been trying to do that is try and identify some sort of loose leadership even if it's um, a number of different people to try and bring them together. And there are a few people there at that protest who who might have the skills to help them do that, people like Matt King. I mean, you know, um, I think there does then need to be some sort of attempt at mediation by bringing in not someone from the government, but someone who's skilled at mediating and negotiating. And that might not necessarily be a police negotiator. It could be someone, you know, a figure who might be known to this group who is skilled at sort of like carrying out negotiations. But there does need to be some sort of attempt at talking, even though that would not necessarily be the government. And then when it does, or if it does, I mean, it has to end at some point, what happens when the protesters go home? Because that's not going to be the end of it. After the protest, I'm not sure. I mean, I think as part of the government strategy, there was talk about mandates not being forever. Um, so then I guess the question is, at what point do they end? What's the what's the trigger point? And also what happens to all those people, you know, the nurses, the police officers, or the whoever, hospitality workers who lost their jobs? Do they just go back to their job? You know, what's the situation? There's so many questions there, I think. And, you know, I think to a certain extent it's fair enough. We're all just finding our way as we go along. It's, mm. there's, there's no rule book for any of this. This happened really quickly, didn't it? It was, I yeah. think, the idea came out around about the end of January. And because of social media and the different channels that a lot of these people are communicating on, they were able to get it together, make it happen really, really quickly. This is, there's going to be... But like a template. It's a template. Yeah. And I guess that is the power of social media now you know the iphone didn't make an appearance until 2006 two years after the foreshore and seabed hikoi you know how different that might that have been if we'd had that level of social media then that we have now that's the issue but it's it's not just that the level of distrust is such that you know as a, as a journalist we, you know we interviewed countless people i think about 20 people um down at the protest the other day but 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 then the reporters who did that story have had people, you know, writing on LinkedIn and everywhere else that it was all just made up. They didn't show mm. us video evidence and then you show them video evidence and it's doctored. So basically, social media gives people the power to disregard anything they don't want to believe in as fake. 
Mm. You know, and that's that's what we're struggling with. It's like there's no level of proof or evidence that is going to change a person's mind or, or, or make them rethink their stance because they can find what they want to believe in elsewhere on social media. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. And I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and is produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Mark Dalder, Kristen Hall and Tracy Watkins. Mate wa. Wow.